Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Commented Podcast, where we talk about your favorite movies, music, TV shows, and more. I'm Tori. I'm Marin. I'm Mia. And I'm DeCoria. And it is Happy Black History Month. We're in the last week, but you know what? We already made a consensus as a Black collective that we're extending it into March. (laughs) (laughs) It's just Black History Month has not been hitting, but... um, Thank you all once again for tuning into this episode and remember to drink your water, wear your sunscreen, and wear a mask as we go into our Black History Month special. So we decided this month that we were going to search up four Black individuals who have made contributions to society that nobody may talk about a lot or may, nobody may know, people who we find interesting, and give you a little a little details about their lives and um what contributions they made to history um if you don't live in america i mean well even other parts around the world that have very big populations of black people it is very easy for black um achievements to be overlooked um to be set aside in society and so we wanted to highlight some excellent fantastic i think we all pick women we all pick women (laughs) women to cover this black history month and we will also be doing a women history special as well so um we're just gonna hop into it and i think i'm gonna go first i before uh i start this story um i just want to put a disclaimer um to the two white bitches who were (laughs) decided they were going to exploit this woman's history for their own purposes i hope you fall on ice and break a hip i hope all your toast burns i know one of you is rotten in hell um but i decided to do my black history um special on mary ellen pleasant mary ellen pleasant was a activist and entrepreneur um, in California during the 1800s. She has an incredible legacy, but unfortunately, due to the mm, tons of fucking rumors that were started about her um, by some vindictive bitches based off a very mentally ill woman's diary, a lot of her history has been um, malformed um even if you type in mary ellen pleasant you get obituaries in the new york times that are full of misinformation you get articles about her that's full of misinformation even the picture of mary ellen pleasant when you type it into google it's not her that's a picture of queen emma uh the wife of a hawaiian king from like the 1800s around the same time you know why that picture shows up because the one white bitch who wrote a lot about her tried to make that her portrait and it's not mary ellen pleasant was a black woman who was you know from Nantucket and she there's just so much misinformation she was not a voodoo priestess there's just I I I'm saying this disclaimer because I tried so hard to find a a um the the best version of her life without as without as much information as possible and mm-hmm. if I do have some misinformation here, I apologize. I tried to weed through uh, sources that weren't Wikipedia and look at the sources that Wikipedia had. So a lot of my information or the kind of writing style that I'm going to be talking in is from an Ebony article from um, an Ebony essay from 1979 by uh, Lerone Bennett Jr. And then a WordPress by, um, I think her name is Catlin Williams, who was very invested in the 
mystifying Mary Ellen Pleasant's life. So come and sit and take a ride with me as we talk about Mary Ellen Pleasant. I'm a whole theater in myself. This is a quote from Teresa Bell, the the mentally ill white bitch. Um, But she was nowhere near smart enough to come up with such a stunning line. You see, the woman who calls herself a theater is not to be played with. Someone said she was, if she was a white man, she would have been president, a general, or even a a statesman. But even if she didn't reach such amazing titles, she did receive one that would make her mark in history. This is the story of the entrepreneur, financer, real estate mogul, abolitionist, the mother who they call the mother of civil rights in California, Miss Mary Ellen Pleasant. Um, it says to be approximately in 1820 when she was six years old. She was, her story kind of starts in Nantucket during the golden era of willing. There are tons of different um, theories about Mary Ellen Pleasant's birth. Some there's the wrong theory that I think um, that she was born to slavery, which is not true. She was born a free woman. She was born, some say she was born to a voodoo priestess of a mother, which has also never been proven to be true. Um, but from her own lips, she doesn't have any memories before Nantucket. So we're going to start in Nantucket. At Nantucket, she was, she went and became a servant to the uh, Hussey household. The Husseys owned a store on Union Street where Aunt Mary began to work um, under Mary Hussey, or Grandma Hussey. Quickly, she learned how her position as a servant could be to her benefit because no one will truly sees a servant. She always thought the job was temporary and learned as much as she could about the job by developing a friendly manner, and she had great business intuition. Aunt Mary, um, I'm calling her Auntie Mary, <laughs> a lot in this story um said so she could recall the accounts for a whole day and the grandma hussey would review them and they would be just as he remembered she later stated in her memoir i don't know if this is correct but i think it's an interesting note to put in that says i often wonder what i would have been with an education i had left books alone and studied men and women a good deal i've always noticed that when i would say something people would listen they never go to sleep on me um by the time she was around 25 auntie mary grew to love the hussey family and they loved her back they were quakers they were abolitionists and so she um becoming friends with grandma hussey's granddaughter phoebe they're around the same age um she got she was introduced to a bunch of um very important abolitionists during the 1800s um their son thomas supposedly taught auntie mary how to write and read and through phoebe she entered the circle of anti-slavery society she left nantucket around the time she was 26 but she continued exchange letters with the hussies until their deaths so after leaving nantucket this is supposedly um the hussies help young auntie mary become a tailor and assistant in boston where she met her future husband jane smith a wealthy man some say he was you know mixed and could pass for white but he was a rich man who who was about his business so they got married and he was an abolitionist and together the couple were conductors on the underground railroad in Nantucket. They escorted people from New Bedford and Ma- Massachusetts, Ohio, maybe even New Orleans to freedom in Nova Scotia and Canada and in Mexico. And the Hussey family, um, the Quakers that she worked with most of her life who became her family, um, also helped house people as a stop on the Underground Railroad. So um, it's said to say that James, her husband, was an agent to the anti-slavery newspaper, The Liberator, um, which possibly led Auntie Mary to c- connecting even more abolitionists and more anti-slavery meetings. James died after four years of marriage, leaving Auntie Mary a nice inheritance of $40,000. Yeah. 
that is one million four hundred and forty one thousand seven hundred and eighty four hundred dollars in today's money so auntie auntie mary was sitting on some coin she was sitting on some pretty coin you said he was rich with like all the letters capital like (laughs) capital w James was about his business. James was about his business. Mm-hmm. And so he left that money for her to continue to fight against slavery, which she did. She continued to be a, a conductor in the Underground Railroad for three or four years. It's assumed that she might have to end up leaving the East Coast after the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793. Mm-hmm. Um, because it was now people who were underground um, railroad conductors could be prosecuted by the law. So during this time, um, Auntie Mary returned to Nantucket for a short period where Edward... Um, from the Hussey family helped her manage her husband's estate. Not long after she married um, a former enslaved black man named John Pleasant. We're going to call him JJ, Uncle Jay. Um, it's possibly that they were married on Captain Gardner's boat, and that's where she met Thomas Bell. Thomas Bell will come into later in the story. They had a daughter named Elizabeth, um, and it's assumed that the couple continued to do anti slavery work until they moved to San Francisco for the California Gold Rush. Now, the California Gold Rush, people who don't know, was between 1848 and 1855. This provided a unique opportunity for Black people. As one African American miner wrote to his wife, this is the best place for Black folks on the globe. All a man has to do is work, and he will have to and he will have um make money many black people were rich through prospecting and like this wild wild west dream right cowboys were mostly black btw for anybody <laughs> who watches cowboy movies but um there's also a lot of misinformation about her uh, arrival in san francisco um you know she went by several different names because you know she knew how to you know code switch basically <laughs> for her audience and so there's a lot of confusion about who she what what you know white people called her because she worked with a lot of white people and what uh, you know black people called her and what her employees called her but what can be proven is that when auntie mary got to san francisco it said it said what we think happened is that her husband went first and then she followed him and she became a domestic worker. She was a domestic worker. She worked in the domestic field. Even though she was sitting on coins, she said, I'm still going to make this money. You know, you can't let all these people know. You can't let everybody know your bag. You know that some of the richest people in the world are real quiet about that shit. <laughs> right. And so there is an article from like the Napa Valley that stated that when Mary when she arrived in San Francisco, that wealthy men were bidding on her service. I don't think the source is credible because it also calls her a voodoo queen and said that she ran brothels, which is false, which can't be proven at all. Um, what can be proven is that she did work for an, uh, a rich man named Woodward until his death. And that she opened up her own boarding house while she was simultaneously investing in rising businesses and giving a black people a one-up. So if you were black in San Francisco during this time, you knew who the Pleasants were. You know who Uncle JJ was. You know who Auntie Mary was. If you need a job, if you needed investment on your business, they were the couple to go to. And so that's what a lot of people did. And they were just out here, you know, you know, doing what they could for the people. And so, um, as this began to happen, there was a abolitionist, a very famous abolitionist named James Brown. And when he was finally, you know, hung, um, after committing murder and treason, basically in the South, there is a slip that came out of his pocket. I don't know how real this is, but I like to believe that it's real. Um, 
they found a note in his pocket said the axe is laid at the foot of the tree when the first blow is struck there will be more money to help a lot of people believe that this was like a wealthy northerner who had helped brown um fund all his um raids against uh and um pro-slavery people but it is said to be that this was a note from auntie mary herself so she was out here funding abolitionist movements she was out here doing the damn thing right and it doesn't stop there because um as she became more prominent as her and james uncle uncle jj became um more prominent in the san francisco area they started litigating in courts so um it's you know a lot of people write this as if she was doing it herself but if you look at all the documents that are from that time period her husband's signature is on all of them so the important cases that did um that they did was after being ejected at a streetcar auntie mary sued two railroad uh, railroad companies the first against omnibus railroad company where um was withdrawn after the company promised to allow african americans to board their streetcars the second was pleasant versus north against beach and mission railroad company it went to california supreme court and took two years to complete in the city the case outlaws segregation in the city's public conveyances which means y'all have to like black people ride your streetcars what the fuck about it now um but the state supreme court said the damage awarded were her were too excessive um so they reversed um the court trial but this put um the pleasants on the map and so they both became the parents of civil rights of san francisco they were not taking any bullshit and because they had the money to fight against white people in court they did it often um the case only won though because it was a they had a testimony by a white woman that's why it won on state level but was rejected supreme court level and because the witness who was an employer of um auntie mary called her mama the press started being assholes and calling her mammy pleasant and she hated that name and that's a derogatory term and almost every single fucking (laughs) article and book Mm -hmm. that was written about her after her death the title is mammy pleasant and i fucking hate that to my fucking core because she literally says my name is mrs pleasant uh, so many times and so many different like quotes supposedly quotes from her because i don't know how much of the shit is real but the one thing is for sure that she, if you were a friend of Marianne pleasant you weren't going to call her mammy and it's very telling that a lot of the sources of which people are using to define her story are books that are titled make like making a mammy pleasant and shit like that so take all of those sources with a grain of salt especially the one by the bitch named helen okay we'll get to that in a second um as she continued to do court trials but then there was one court trial that basically shit hit the fan and ruined her reputation so she had a very clean reputation against white and black communities she invested in black businesses was extremely close to the founders of dawns and dennis stables she had um gave various members of the downs family's job which would be thankless later on in her life um so then there came this trial, which was Sharon Hill versus the Senator William Sharon. So I saw some sources that said Sharon Hill was a foster child that um, Mary, um, Auntie Mary had brought in because after Uncle JJ died, she started to, she became, um, her boarding house was still going, but she also 
became the head steward of the Bell family. Y'all remember Thomas Bell that she met on the boat before she mm-hmm. came, like, all the way yeah. to San Francisco? So, the Bell family are also important because they employed her for, like, 10 years and some shit goes down there. But this case with um, Sharon against the senator was that um, it was a court battle which involved the breakup of their arrangement and whether there were damages, right? So, in Sharon's perspective, that they had a contractual relationship um, as if they were married, and he, which Sharon was agreed to get paid $500 each month, so, um, but, you know, the senator's saying, I just paid her $500 each month to sleep with me, but um, the woman, she... The woman and Mary both understood the agreement to be a marriage contract that was kept under wraps for political purposes. So Auntie Mary was trying to basically help in this like divorce settlement, basically. Like, was it a marriage? Was it, you know, just sex service work? And so they went to court about this. And because this dude is a senator, they ran Auntie Mary's name through the mud. They said that, um, well, the lawyer that was um, ahead of that was Sharon, the woman's um, lawyer, basically got emotionally involved. And so he, they started dating or whatever, but because he was so adamant about this case, these fucking yellow journalists basically started just making up shit about Auntie Mary, saying that she was manipulating Hill. Um, They were accused her of poisoning the mayor's food. They accused her of casting spells on him. They painted her to be this evil voodoo witch who had ties to like a voodoo priestess in Louisiana. And which is, they just made her out to be this evil vindictive person who was doing this because she could. But when she got on the stand, all the report, a lot of reports were just like, she was so articulate. She was stern, but she wasn't evil. Um, but nonetheless, it was too late. Her reputation was already ruined. Um, and so the case was ultimately ruined in the favor of the mayor. Um, the woman uh, who I guess could be her foster daughter, I don't know, was basically very... At the time, by the trial ended, her the woman and her lawyer were married. And mm-hmm. so... Or dating or whatever. And so when she got the verdict in court, she blew the fuck up and got sentenced to six months in jails. The case was embarrassing for Thomas Bell as his servant was being plastered all over the news as an evil woman, though he probably didn't believe it. The family did suffer from accusations of Mary, but she continued to work with them, right? Mm-hmm. She was their head steward. Um, some people say that she owned the house or she made the house. There's no there's no evidence supports that she owned that mansion that the, t- the Bells lived in. Even in her, this is what fucking pisses me off. Even in her obituary, there's this like flippant ass comment where the person who wrote the obituary was just like, it's, you know, it's said that she had a relationship with Thomas Bell, which is shit that came out after um, Thomas died because of his wife, which we'll get to in a second. But it just makes me so upset that nobody is trying to get the, 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 you know, try not to write the story without all the made up shit about it so after 10 years of being in service with the bell family thomas bell dies um which resulted out i think him that his wife Teresa had already started falling out before thomas's death but because like the picture that i kind of get from the wordpress is that after her husband died she had been married to this man for 30 years right so after he died she became the head steward of the bell family um she 
wasn't in i mean some people say she was in charge of the money other people says that she just was really good at investing and gave bill who was you know already a rich man in san francisco ideas on where to invest his money like she was like they were kind of like business partners right but also in this house were the foster children she was having and all this other stuff and they were kind of a blended family um and it seems like she was just she was looking for a family but they turned out to be snakes because you have to be careful of white allyship because Mm -hmm. after thomas died his wife basically um his wife who was known to be overly emotional and suffered from um mental instability claimed that tens of thousand dollars were stolen by auntie mary and um that her husband that thomas had been manipulated by auntie mary and so they went to trial but and you know word was coming out in the press that it was difficult to discern whether who what was the bell money and what was pleasant money and that she was you know in charge of the entire household and she can do whatever the fuck she wanted because she was thomas bell's servant and i don't think any of that was true um but it said that Teresa was being manipulated by her new lover and getting rid of Mary and Unpleasant, which I do kind of believe. And after moving, um, she countersued um, and say there was a conspiracy to tarnish her name and take her money. And so she spent the end of her days in the hands of strangers. Um, she sent her foster kids away. Her husband had died. She had been kicked out of the Octavia mansion. I think she was also had given, I think she had also been given a house Mm-hmm. Or like a militant like a mansion for compensation and they took that away from her too during the trial i'm not completely sure about that that's kind of the um inferences that i'm getting um but she lived until i think she was 80 years old um she died on january 11th 1904 um and she's laid to rest at the tokola cemetery in napa california her gravesite is marked with a metal sculpture and a site was dedicated on June 11, 2000. Her grave um, stone contains the words that she was a friend of John Brown, which I don't like. She wanted those words on her grave. Um, her former mansion was demolished and has been replaced by Mary Ellison Memorial Park. And I'm just going to read this ending paragraph um, from the Ebony article that I think kind of sums up about her legacy. Um... She was a friend of John Brown, but was this finally the meaning of her life? Was this woman, the woman who was a friend of John Brown and a passionate supporter of the downtrodden and oppressed, was just the real Mary Ellison? Pleasant, perhaps. It's certainly one of the meanings of her life. As for the result, it is too soon really to say. After years of neglect and defamation, the great black pioneer was finally um, attracted the attention of serious scholars who are still deciphering the hieroglyphics of her life. Um, this essay in the beginning, as we said, was an easy toward an understanding of the questions, and it was based in the implicity and explicitly on the premise that Mary Ellen Pleasant deserved defense, not because she was a great financier, not because she was a great pioneer, but because she was a rare presence who lived a life that belongs, whatever the final answer is, to the realm of the unconquered spirit. Um, that is the story of Mary Ellen Pleasant um, and her husband, John James, the parents of the civil rights in california i think there is much more about their legacy that is 
overly complicated by the exploitation of white writers who were constantly making shit up about her. And it hurts my soul. And I'm so glad that I found that blog because if I had gotten on here and just used sources mm-hmm. like Wikipedia or New York Times, I would have felt like a complete shit. And mm-hmm. so I just want people... And it's crazy because like even when I went into the comments of that blog, people were like, well, I, I tend to believe she was a voodoo priestess. I tend to believe she was in voodoo, which is nothing wrong with voodoo and hoodoo. But there's no... Beside that first source of the bitch named Helen who was mm-hmm. using Teresa Bell's diaries. She was using the diaries of a mentally ill woman to write about Mary Ellen Pleasant's life and then calling her Mammy. How am I supposed to believe a woman that titles her book Mammy Pleasant? Mm-hmm. You know? Right. How do I think she has her best interest in heart? And a lot of people were paid to just continue write bullshit about Mary Ellen Pleasant in the press before she died and after she died. And those people include people that were around her. You remember that that family, the Downs? Mm-hmm. That motherfucker wrote a whole article called The Queen of Voodoo and said that she mm-hmm. was murdering people and that what? she had that whole huh? that they they even insinuated that she killed Thomas. And I was like, I can't. I've had it up to here and it makes me so upset that such a legacy I've never heard about her until I found her on a website that was talking about um unheard black heroes. And because her legacy is just constantly being diminished by fuckheads, <laughs> I want you to remember Mary Ann Pleasant and her husband as people who went to court. They were underground railroad conductors. Do you know how dangerous of a fucking job that is? Mm-hmm. She had millions of dollars and could still continue to work. You know, she was an investor. She invested in black businesses. She made sure black people in San Francisco and in California had a place to come for a resource. And she was an amazing person. And I want her to be remembered as such. So thank you. Auntie Miri for your contributions. Because like who, somebody, a black woman, a black couple in court suing a company, (laughs) badass power couple shit, please. So yes, um, let's go ahead with, uh, Marion, you want to go? Yeah. Okay. So I did Miss Daisy Bates. Um, mm. Let's start off with her early life. Daisy Bates was born in Huttig, Huttig, Arkansas in 1914. While still an infant, her mother was killed by three white men. Um, it said that they tricked her mom into leaving the house by saying her husband was injured and killed her. Um, and I think, mm. yeah, we'll just stop there. Hope y'all are all rolling in hell. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, they are. Her father, they are. Um, <laughs> when it comes to the story of her father, it was a little confusing. I have here that her father, out of fear, disappeared from town and mm-hmm. gave her to family friends, Orly, Susie, Orly and Susie Smith, who adopted her. When you look mm-hmm. online, they also say that she was in a foster house. I Foster home, I don't really know, but that's what's most common out there, um, okay. is her being adopted by Orly and Susie Smith. At the age of eight is when Daisy learned the truth um, as to what happened to her mom. I think a little boy on the playground said that something had happened to her mother and then her cousin told her the truth. Um, This is when she learned that her mother was, um, her father basically told her that um, her mom was killed due to her being black. Daisy had faced discrimination all her life, but it made, but this um, knowledge made her confront the harsh reality of being black in America. In her memoir, Bates, um, well, that's Daisy, states that she encountered one of the white men that killed her mother and went out of her way to run into this man and make him face her. Um, Mm. They did not serve any jail time for their crimes. 
Um, this led to a hatred of white people. Daisy let go of her white friends and disliked the expectations that she would do favors for her white neighbors. Her adopted father didn't want Lazy Daisy to get rid of this hatred, but wanted her to also use it to make a change. On his deathbed, he said to Daisy, don't hate white people just because they're white. If you hate, make it count for something. Hate the humi humiliations we are living under in the South. Hate the discrimination that eats away at the soul of every black man and woman. Hate the insults insults hurled at us by white scum then try to do something about it or your hate won't spell a thing mm. um when she was 15 daisy met her husband lc bates and since he was an insurance agent she traveled with him throughout the south and in 1941 they moved to little rock Arkansas, and in 1942 they were married so um the, the Bates is what I'm going to call her and her husband, um, created mm -hmm. the Arkansas State Press. It's also known as the Arkansas Weekly. It was one of the only newspapers solely, solely dedicated to the civil rights movement. Daisy also worked for the local civil organizations. She served as the president of the Arkansas chapter of the NAACP. In 1944, through the Brown versus Board of Education, the Supreme Court ruled that segregated schools were unconstitutional. And so the Bates used um, their newspaper to report on the schools that were following the federal mandate. She began to gather black kids to enroll into the all-white schools in her home became the organizing and strategy center for the Little Rock Nine. And just to give some additional information, the Little Rock Nine were nine teens selected by Daisy who were the first black students to enter Little Rock Central High School. The, the integration of these students was met with anger from the community, such as the governor deploying the state's National Guard to physically block the students from entering the school, an aggressive mob, and the constant harassment of the students as they attended classes. Uh, mm. Daisy walked into the school with the students for an entire year. She drove the students to school and worked to ensure their safety. Because of this, she became a target. She received death threats, rocks thrown into her house, and was sent bullet shells in the mail. These Is that where driving Miss Daisy comes from? Mm, I would double check on oh, that. Oh, no. That's a film. Okay. Okay. But, yeah. Um, these threats forced the Bates to shut down their newspaper. Her work with the mm. Little Rock Nine introduced her to Dr. Martin Luther King, who inv who invited her to be the Women's Day speaker at the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. Um, when it comes to other aspects of her life, Daisy was named Woman of the Year by the National Council of Negro Women in 1957. In 1962, she published The Long Shadow of Little Rock, a memoir, a book about her life in the Little Rock Nine. She was invited to sit on stage during the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom in 1963 and was the only woman to give a speech. Um, she wasn't supposed to give the speech. Period. It was supposed to be another woman, uh, uh, Merlee Evers, but she was stuck in traffic and wasn't going to make it through. So, she, so Daisy gave the speech. Um, for a brief time, she did move to Washington, D.C., where she worked in the administration of President Lyndon B. Johnson, working on anti-poverty programs. In 1968, Daisy and her husband moved to Mitchville, Arkansas, which has the highest percentage of African Americans in Arkansas, but is also one of the poorest cities in the states. Daisy used her organization skills to pull together residents and improve the community. She became the director of Mitchellville Office of Equal Opportunity Self-Help Project, a program responsible for water and new sewer systems, a community center, and paved streets. Um, after the death of her husband in 1980, Daisy moved back to Little Rock and reopened the, their newspaper. She did sell the newspaper in 1987, but continued to act as a consultant for years. And in the latter half of her life, she had a school dedicated to her. 
And she did carry the torch during the 1996 Olympics in Atlanta. Ooh. Oh, wow. Ooh. In, 19, <laughs> in 1999, she passed away due to a series of heart attacks. She was 84. And now the third Monday of every February, February is recognized as Daisy Getson Bates Day, which just passed. It was this Monday. And oh. she was awarded the Medal of Freedom in 1999 after her passing. And that's oh. my whole story on Miss Daisy Gatson Bates. Yes. Uh, <laughs> when you said 1999, that just showed you how yeah. close right. such silver Very rights soon. moments were. <laughs> right. It yeah, was truly like, not that long ago. Right. Um, the thing about Daisy is through her work with the Little Rock Nine, she was able to present herself um, as being... Um, the face of, of capable of serious leadership as a woman, which is very important at the time because doing what she did as a woman, she didn't receive from what I saw on this PBS video. She didn't receive a lot of help from her fellow people in Arkansas, specifically mm-hmm. the men, because she was seen as an outsider who did, wasn't even born there. that came in and started There's trouble. T- outsider from they- Arkansas? What in the world? <laughs> and, um, and the Arkansas have, probably run deep. Have I been saying it wrong this whole time? Sorry, Arkansas. I think um, it's oh no, no, it's no. both maybe. Okay, yeah, okay, it's both. Yeah, it but, might be um, both, but I know people say Arkansas. Okay, mm-hmm. but the, so I saw this article that said the black men in the community didn't like that she was starting all this trouble within this area of when they, they thought that. Did it. And that's of course why they did. We picked, when, of course, <laughs> I was like, they were like, she should have. They should have rolled out this new um, introducing these black kids into these white schools slowly, where she just brought nine kids immediately into the school but she was a bad bitch so that's what she period period then that's why we're picked four women for black history month now what about that <laughs> <Fuck them. Exactly. laughs> all right uh uh nia you want to go yeah sure okay so all right here i go okay so the the black woman i picked because like tori just said we all pick black women um mm-hmm. i picked marie van Britton brown um, I wanted Ooh, to pick a, a black, right? Come on, name. <laughs> I wanted to pick a black woman who was an inventor. And when I tell mm. y'all, reading her, just like one, there's not a lot of detailed information about her early life or her day to day. It's very much people write about her life as a summary, especially of her life in the '60s of her invention. But mm-hmm. um, so you're not really going to get a lot of her early life from from sources and i don't think she wrote an autobiography so unfortunately um it may just be about her life in the 60s so Mm -hmm. marie was born on october 30th 1922 in jamaica queens new york um also where my well my dad was born in i think jamaica queens i'm not sure but (laughs) we'll see i gotta double check um she worked as a nurse so she just was a regular person she worked a regular nurse job her hours were crazy like most nurses are she um lived with she was married and she lived with her husband albert brown who was an electrician and so being a black person electrician he already that's a huge deal as well for that time um and then she was a nurse so they were both like a very like well-to-do i would i I wouldn't say well-to-do couple i just say that they were just a couple that was on their stuff um Mm -hmm. she worked long hours he worked long hours and so a lot of times their apartment would either be empty because neither of them would be home or she would come home at night and he wouldn't be there and so they lived in 
Um, and this is when she was in her 40s. So even though she was born in the 20s, this is when she was about 40 years old. And so in Jamaica, Queens in the 60s, it was a very different time in terms of like crime was crazy. It was a lot of robberies, burglaries. Um, there was a lot of because drugs were in the community. And so it was a high crime area where they lived. Um, and so she when she would get home from work being a nurse, she didn't like the fact that she was home alone at night. It didn't make her feel safe. And so it really made her anxious, especially knowing that, like, if she were to call the police, it was very unlikely that they would have shown up on time if she were to get robbed or if something happened during the daytime when neither of them were, neither of them were there, the police probably wouldn't have shown up either. Um, and that's pretty much a common thing that I think that you used to hear a lot about black communities. Like if you call cops for something, they're just not going to be there on time. Um, and so she took matters into her own hands in 1966 and said, you know what? I'm kind of tired of this feeling, feeling unsafe in my own neighborhood. And so she invented with, along with her husband, the first ever home security system ever period like period. Not, not based off of somebody <laughs> else's well they did have influence from other things because of course the tv already exists certain things already existed mm -hmm. but like the first ever comprehensive home security system and but i'm post the patent um it's crazy i'm like woof this is beyond this i'm i'm I, my brain can't comprehend this um <laughs> So, and she's also credited with the invention of the first ever closed circuit television, which Ooh. is like, like, in which is what, if y'all don't know, it's a CCTV, which is like, that's amazing. Like people, so many things this Bruh. woman created and her husband that are just so normal today that people don't realize mm -hmm. came from her. Um, so her security system, it starts, it's literally consists of, she, and she made three peepholes. That's how she would drill three holes and then one would be for different heights. So she wanted a hole for kids. So if there's kids like her own children were to come up at the door, she wanted them to be seen. Then she made a second one for like average height folks and then a third one for tall folks. And so she would put a camera that would move up and down on the door so that like she could literally film whoever, no matter what height they were, film it right when they show up at her door. Um, That's she, genius. A genius, genius, right? She was she was in her big biggest bag. Um, <laughs> then uh, then at, and it would like slide up and down. I'm like, what kind of technology come through? Um, and then anything the camera picked up would appear on a monitor inside the house. So it's literally like she could just look on her screen and she can move the screen wherever, and she can look on the screen and see who was outside her door come through. And then even crazier. Like she had a, a function where she could see, like she could, like there was a remote control. And if something like, if she saw somebody who looked suspicious or like someone who she thought was going to rob them or someone who was robbing them, she could press a button and it would notify the police, y'all, instantaneously. And I'm like, I, I can't even comprehend. Not an emergency call button. Right? I, I, I'm living. I'm living. Right? And then she had a two-way microphone. And I'm like, she's she's in she's in 2035. She's she not literally invented the ring doorbell. <laughs> like, oh, we I love this. Listen, I'm getting to it. And then 
she could also, the remote could let her unlock the door at a safer distance. Like she could press a button and the remote would do several things. And I'm like, how, how I don't get it. And like, it's amazing. Cause like, I, I, I look at the patent. I'm like, I see all these things, but I'm just like, how? And then, (laughs) (laughs) and then the, the two way mic let her speak to the person outside. So she literally created like a phone, like almost like what the apps that we have now that like you can look on your phone and see who's outside and then talk to the person. She could do all that back in the sixties. And then if the person that was a visitor that she knew was coming, she could unlock the door with the remote. And I said, oh, oh, excuse me, excuse me, ma'am. <laughs> She's a nurse y'all. She's a nurse and her husband is electrician y'all. These are not like PhD scientists. These are not people who just like, like, came from like generations of like doctors or lawyers like these are just people who are regular Mm. and then so in 1969 her husband and her they officially patented this idea and it was Mm -hmm. like let me look at the official name I have it right here because I want to give you like the proper name it is I don't know why I can't find it I saw it here well it's okay it is just for a home security assistant patent the I think it's her name is what's on first, which is also huge for the time. Her name became before her husband's. Ah, love to see it. And then, and it's, but if you want to look up her patent, it's patent number 3,482,037. So that's the exact number if you want to look at it. It's in the U.S. Uh, directory of patents. And she was recognized in the New York Times um, for her work and then she then later in 1969 that same year received an award for the national site scientist committee for her work so she was like and she's listed in their category under great african-american inventors and like like that's it's insane and then so okay so next this next section I wish I had more information because there's a lot of like facts but I would love to have known what went behind the scenes with this so mm-hmm. so okay so there's several sources that say they never tried to commercially sell it quote unquote but then there's mm-hmm. other sources that say they tried but other companies thought the idea was too expensive for the time and the thing is it's like of co- my first mind is like well of course there's going to be some racism in here because it's 1969 right. and it's a black woman trying to sell her idea I, and, and it's like and I get price is a thing too because if you look at the patent it's like there's several components like the microphone the remote the camera like there's things that are going and I know that would have been expensive but that didn't excuse the fact that during this time most likely there were white inventors that were making super expensive stuff too that probably right. were selling their stuff to really rich people right so mm-hmm. Like the, that, that kind of seems like an excuse to me, like that people were just shutting them down because it was too expensive. Um, probably was more of a race thing to me. Um, but she decided to keep it in their own home, hoping that would spark interest in other home builders. Um, they, it, for the when it first came out, it did see, receive a lot of good press um, because it was the foundation for like video monitoring remote control door locks, push button alarm triggers. Like these are things that had not existed prior. Um, and the entire CCTV, which is used globally in streets, police stations, like every place there are CCTVs. Um, but it's crazy because 
so I there's really no evidence that it was sold so it's like I don't even know if she made money off of this or if they were able Mm. to make money off of this but what I did know is that her invention down the line like 10 to 15 years later and up until now it's been cited in at least 32 future patents um, by other inventors and other people who are patenting their ideas Um, but it's like hmm and then what's the craziest thing is that the home security business is expected to be at least $1.5 billion industry. Mm-hmm. And that's expected to triple by 2024. And it's a little complicated because, like I said, she got pressed for the time. Like she had a whole New York Times article. But it's like, I don't, there's no evidence to show if, how much money she made off of this mm-hmm. or if she got any compensation down the line for people who did use her patents. I don't know. I really don't know. I wish that there was more information out there. Just because I have like descendants. Do you know? Yeah, Aren't she has. She yeah, yeah. She has two kids. So mm-hmm. she one of them is a daughter, Norma Brown, who also went on to become a nurse and inventor. But like, I don't know if mm-hmm. it just kind of is frustrating to see that there's so little information on like her financial status as she aged because she did yeah. die in. 19, February 2nd, 1999 at 76. Mm-hmm. Because to me, that kind of matters. Like whether yeah. this black person who invented something that changed the world lived comfortably or received mm-hmm. financial compensation for their genius. Yeah. And it's like, there's no evidence to say that. Like I, 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 I appreciate the, and I know she appreciated like the odd from like the, the nod from the science, what's, what's the, the national science committee. But the fact that no one in any of these articles have talked about like whether she lived comfortably or whether she made money kind of bothers me. Mm -hmm. Um, I hope that if I, when I keep doing more research that I'll find some source about her financial status, but it does very, very much bother me that 30 years later, like Corey said earlier, like the ring, all these doorbells, all these security systems, they're out here making so much money only off the backs of her and her husband's idea. And that's, that's insane to me. And I doubt any of these companies are thinking, well, all this money we're making, like, let's see who let's like give compensation to this, the descendants of this black woman who invented this. Like, I don't know. That's when it gets complicated and frustrating a little bit, but I just want everybody to know out there, like the security system you probably have in your house, it's due to a black woman. A black woman, right? It's Marie Van Britten Brown. Like, please remember her. And also, there are places I look that still use her exact model of patent. So, like, the exact thing. And they say that's usually in nursing homes, I believe, and some police stations, some local police stations, which is... And I don't know if that means that if you use the exact patent that you might get some compensation, but I don't know. Um, I'd have to keep looking into it. But she designed something in her husband that would literally change the entire world and yeah I think it's something that we can feel in our everyday lives um yeah she truly did that and Mm -hmm. there's like I think there's one black owned home security system that's crazy called Silver Shield Security LLCC Mm. and they're based providing probably serving the Carolinas and Atlanta Georgia so if you need home security mm. and you're down here, check them out because that's insanity. She was really it, in her bag and it's just 
it's disappointing that she didn't get a bag like yeah and that's that's one of the things about a lot of black inventors is that they create they innovate they do something that's literally life-changing and then someone else comes in and makes money but I mean I hope that that people will remember her and her legacy and try to look and see what her descendants are doing like and try to support them if any possible like they say her daughter's an inventor so check that out and see what she's doing try to you know Mm -hmm. keep these people in your mind yes last but not least miss Corey. Okay, so I did my uh, research on Dr. Ruth Janetta Temple, Uh, like a quick overview. So Ruth Janetta Temple was an African-American physician, public health practitioner, and innovator in providing free and affordable health care for disadvantaged communities in the Los Angeles area. So Dr. Ruth Temple was born in Natchez, Mississippi on November 1st, 1892. Ruth's mother, Amy Montague Morton Temple, was a practical nurse who earned a teaching degree from Shaw University in Rayleigh, South Carolina, which is the first historically Black college. Ruth's father was Richard Jason Temple, a Baptist minister and church leader who had finished all of his doctoral work except for a dissertation at Denison University. Amy and Richard met at Hotel Astoria in New York City, where they were both working to pay for college and whatnot. And after getting engaged, Richard Temple told his fiance that he felt that his calling was to be a missionary in the South. She, of course, did not agree with this at all at first, (laughs) as the racism in the South was way more severe than where they were at at the time. But he was able to convince her by appealing to her community spirit. Like, um, Amy was the type of person who always helps them when they need like anybody who mm-hmm. had trouble, she always like offered them a place to stay. So he was able to convince her to move to the South by like appealing to her spirit. And he was saying like stuff like, Oh, don't worry, Amy, it'll be all right. Because what we'll do is we'll get a house by the side of the road where the people pass by, people will come into our house, all people, all kinds of people of all races, all creeds, and all colors, all educational backgrounds. And that his children will learn to love before they learn to hate. And then the rest won't matter. Yeah, I don't know if I would have went along with that, but okay. Yeah, I, especially living in the future, I'm like, oh yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jason Temple's way of thinking greatly affected his daughter's outlook on life, um, which later like inspired her to help all people. Basically, he was one of those people who kind of like, even though he was a minister, he saw like, all religions as equal, and he often kept like uh books and scriptures from other religions around the house for like his children to read um so when she was 10 unfortunately illness took away her father's life and she was quoted later in life saying when he left us i was heartbroken it was the first catastrophe i ever had in 1904 amy temple moved her family out of south out of the south to los angeles california um, she had previously homeschooled her children, um, but due to her husband's death, she had to get a job and she became t- uh, a practical nurse. This put Ruth into the role of the mother, of course, because she's the oldest daughter of six children. Mm. So the major event that inspired her to become a physician was when she was 13, her oldest brother, Walter, 
was experimenting with gunpowder outside, as young boys do back then. I'm sorry, what? (laughs) Yeah, he was experimenting with gunpowder. So, oh my god. Experimenting? Wait a second. Yeah, he he put gunpowder into the hose and lit it. I don't know, you know, young boys tend to do very idiotic stuff like this. So I can just imagine if I had been living back then, one of my brothers would have done some shit like this. Because, like, one of my brothers, they used to, like, set stuff on fire for no reason. I, I can't tell you why, but... I need the science behind that destructive-ass behavior. Because, like, yeah. what? <laughs> so Ruth ran over to her brother, who was lying on the ground, grabbed his head, and turned it to her. Brushed the suit and powdered off his face, and she realized he hadn't actually done much damage to himself, except for one singed eyebrow. After this, she saw the possibility of helping others and taking pain away. From then on, she wanted to be a physician. Also, later on, like within like a couple of months, I believe, um, she saved one of her neighbor's lives. Uh, one of the neighbor's sons fell into an oil ditch and like washed away like a couple meters. And Ooh. they dragged him out of the oil ditch and he was not breathing. She was the only one who gave him CPR and, of course, was able to resusc- resuscitate him. So... The Temple family also um, in Los Angeles, they helped establish the first African-American Seventh-day Adventist church in the West. Her education and career. So in 1913, Ruth Temple was invited to speak at the Los Angeles Forum. And the Forum is an African-American cultural and political organization, which is like basically for black elites and like um, physicians, doctors, wealthy people who are black. Um, And she was invited to speak by Theodore Troy, who was a member of her church, who had overheard her um, speaking about her desires to become a physician. He was like super impressed that she wanted to be a doctor. And so after she gave her speech at the forum, he stood up out of nowhere kind of and announced that the forum had decided to sponsor her with a five-year scholarship to the College of Medical Evangelists, which is now Loma Linda University. So in 1918, Ruth Temple became the first black female graduate from Loma Linda Linda University. In that same year, she opened the first health clinic in the medically underserved community of Southeast Los Angeles. Funding for the clinic was like really scarce. So her husband, who Otis Banks, who was a real estate broker, um, turned their newly purchased five bedroom bungalow into the Temple Health Institute. The Institute was a free medical clinic that discussed common community issues such as substance abuse, immunization, nutrition, and sex education, surprisingly. Um, And Temple found it important to educate adults and children on these matters because she wanted people to be self-sufficient. And she knew that nothing would prevent them from getting the resources they need to maintain a healthy life if they had the education. Which is pretty much true. Like, we learned this in public health that the best way to a healthy life is prevention. So the fact that she was teaching people this stuff back then is just wild. Um, so she developed within the Institute community-based programs like the Total Health Program, the Health Study Center, the Health Study Club. These programs were designed to educate patients and other local residents about the resources available not only in her clinic, but also anywhere in Los Angeles in the greater California area. And these services end up being offered at schools and PTA meetings and YWCA's, churches, the synagogues, service agencies, um, private health clinics, study clubs, and like literally like blocks of block training. 
and at local health information centers. Her programs ended up getting national attentions with acronyms like ABC, which stands for Acquiring Basic Health Knowledge, Bringing Into Practice What Is Learned, and Communicating Into Contacts, which is stuff that we still learn today. In 1941, the Los Angeles Health Department offered her a scholarship to pursue her master's degree in public health at Yale University. Despite the prevailing racial prejudice at the time, Temple was on the teaching staff of White Memorial Hospital in Los Angeles, where she taught white medical students. She held many prominent positions within the Los Angeles Public Health Department from 1942 to 1962 when she retired and received numerous awards and honors. In 1983, the year before her death, the East Los Angeles Health Center renamed itself to Dr. Ruth Temple Health Center. So she unfortunately does not have any children at all that um, descended from her. So this is pretty much where her story as far as like kids and stuff in. But her legacy lives on like well into today because I think we I'm pretty sure I learned about her like in my public health classes at Georgia State University. Oh, cool. Okay. Nice. Yeah. Very, very cool. I just love the energy we've created in the studio today. Like, love a black woman from infinity to infinity. <laughs> I love it because, like, it's like Black History Month. If you've been in public school, it's just like, here's slavery. Here's, here's King. Here's Barack Obama. We're done. Like, what? <laughs> like, what? So Malcolm it's always X was bad. Fun. That's what they teach us. <laughs> right. Malcolm X was an evil man, and the Nation of Islam was bad. Like, they were. Just Everybody crazy. loved Dr. King, which was not true at the time. He was alive, but okay. Right. <laughs> okay. Like, for real, though, it was just. It's, it's like half a chapter in your history book. I think you go on learning about white America for the rest of your time in school. So I love to listen to learn about black history because it like, for those of you who don't know, I'm studying to become a Korean teacher and it's not because I want people to love Korea or want people from Korea to love us. It's because I've never been taught like that black people make a mark on the world. Like our mark on the world is usually bound to slavery or to music and sports, which is not bad because music and sports have been as exploitive as it is. It's a very, um, it's a prominent way for a lot of um, black athletes and musicians to, to rise, to get into a different class, which is hard. Um, But it's, it's kind of like the only options that are taught to black children. And so when you become a good Korean teacher was just like, I want to teach kids that there are more options besides America. <laughs> you know, there's racism everywhere, but like, it's probably going to be nothing as bad as you experience here. Um, and that they can be global citizens because being, that's such a foreign concept in black communities. And so doing this special was, I think it was fun for us. Did y'all enjoy it? I liked it. Yeah. I was yeah. mad, but like, <laughs> was frustrated but i enjoyed it i think it's so much fun to learn about these black um people who have made history and it's great to have new sources and new information about them put out there so Mm -hmm. to all of my melanated kings and queens and um non-binaries i hope you had a wonderful black history month we're extending it into march we might extend that shit into april you know as well um but thank you guys um 
again for listening to this uh podcast we really appreciate it and um since it's black history month you definitely need to leave a review a five-star mm-hmm. review on spotify and apple Podcasts. like we don't even ask y'all for money so like a review that is like literally <laughs> that would literally be the best thing in the world um um and you can always come talk to us on twitter at uh competent or tiktok competent podcast we have some more fun stuff fun stuff coming up <laughs> in march so make sure your notifications are on um until next time i'm tori i'm mirin i'm nia and i'm decoria Bye-bye. Bye bye